I always try to be the best at whatever I'm doing. <laughs> and if I'm not, I still tell myself I'm the best. <laughs> you got to believe it, right? I mean... <laughs> Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And it feels like we're living in a new world after this Australian Open, huh? This entire championship weekend has felt like the twilight zone. <laughs> yes. Uh, for lack of sleep, first of all, it feels, you know, very disorienting. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it's over in that, right? But we are living in a tennis world where Rafa Nadal leads the Grand Slam title count for the first time. 21. Where Ash Barty has a slam title on three different surfaces. French, Wimbledon, and now the Australian Open. Uh, Nick Kyrgios is a, a Grand Slam title winner. Far less notable. But still something maybe you didn't foresee at okay. the beginning of this month. Mm -hmm. Danielle Collins is a Grand Slam runner-up. Mm -hmm. A lot has happened. Yes. Just in the last few days. And here I was thinking that all the, the sporting goodness had been used up on my end. Mm -hmm. And just before airing, West Indies beat England in their bilateral best of five T20 series in Barbados. With Jason Holder taking the last four England wickets in succession in the 20th over. And I learned something new about cricket. that Which is? Like taking three in a row as a hat-trick. Mm -hmm. I did not know that four in a row is a double hat-trick. Okay. I imagine it doesn't happen very often. No, so it you does haven't not. Prob you probably haven't had occasion to learn what that is, right? That is true. Why? I mean, it's definitely happened before. Right. Not to a West Indian cricketer in T20 cricket. Jason Holder mm. is the first one to even have a hat-trick. Why would it be called a double hat-trick if three is one? The explanation I read was that any <laughs> any number, any combination of those four wickets could be counted as three in a row. I don't know. It... Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Yes. Ma the world of mathematics. I hope I did not just suck all the air and steam out of this <laughs> People episode. People are like, what the hell is a wicket? <laughs> Trust that fucker to do this. <laughs> so we had a weird night, right? I went to bed at midnight here and I set my alarm for three. Mm -hmm. And it either didn't go off or I shut it off in my sleep or something. But I woke up again at like 9 a.m. I think you shut it off in your sleep, because I'm pretty have. sure I heard you get up to use the bathroom at like 6. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do remember checking the score at like 6.30 or something, mm -hmm. and Rafa was down two sets, and I was like, well, you know what? Fuck, I just, I slept through the alarm, but is it worth it now? And it actually, it would have been worth it. it I wish you would have had that experience in your life, mm -hmm. but I was not about to wake you up at any point, really, until the fifth set, <laughs> where it was right. like, worth it, you know? And even then... This is Rafa in Australia. It could have just been waking you up for heartbreak, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So I figured at that point, you know, you must know what you're doing. Yes, we still have very clear memories of uh, being up a break in the fifth set against Roger in 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember all hours of the night watching Rafa injure his back against Dan Marinka, uh, although he was 
kind of already losing to Stan. Still, it's been a rough go of it. This has been cathartic for Raw fans. Mm -hmm. I can't foresee a better outcome for tournament organizers than having Rafa Nadal and Ash Barty win these singles titles. And then to get Kyrgios and Kokonakis winning the men's doubles, it would have been an Aussie doubles champion anyway, because they were playing Aussies across the Mm -hmm. net. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was an Australian team in the mixed doubles final as well. It would be hard to compete with the kind of attention that these two champions brought to the sport in these past two weeks. Because most of the attention before the tournament was extremely negative. Mm-hmm. It wasn't great. We we knew that Craig would probably survive. But in both trophy presentations, he was there. He was feted. <laughs> he was lauded by the players. Craig Tiley's not going anywhere. No. Now, he may not actually deserve such a successful tournament this year after the uh, the many mistakes leading up to it. But clearly, he has built something special that the players really, really enjoy. Let's start with this men's final. Under any other circumstance, we'd be starting with Ash first. <laughs> yes, we. I mean, we always start with the women and probably talk about them way longer than most men's finals. But this men's final, uh, you know, it's one of the longest we've seen, five hours and 24 minutes. Rafa has lost five set finals here before. And losing the first two sets, 6-2 and 7-6, the second set being, what, 84 minutes long? It wasn't looking good. No. Um, but in the lead up to this match, I saw a lot of talk and heard a lot of talk about how this is probably the worst matchup for Rafa shy of Novak in this situation. And from the semifinal stage, I said to you that I think that Nadal has a better chance against Daniil than he would against Stefanos. And the reason why was because I felt like a redlining Stefanos, which could have happened, mm-hmm. would be bad news for Rafa in this situation. Whereas no matter how well and exhausting Medvedev is playing, the rallies are still long enough and the match is still long enough and he takes his time with it for Rafa to be able to bring the etc of his mind to that match to give him the chance to find like he says find solutions and troubleshoot his way in this match Mm -hmm. Uh, of course you ended up being right but i think there was a little bit of a leap of faith aspect to that prediction because daniel also has the ability to wear him down and i think daniel and a lot of us probably expected that rafa was in lesser physical condition than his opponent would be Mm -hmm. who is much younger who i mean isn't known to be you know the fittest player on tour but he's certainly no slouch is not afraid of long matches yes Uh, rafa also had physical issues in the tournament with dehydration yeah that was in the quarters against dennis he also had lost a few sets and looked in not great shape after losing leads, for example, against Shapovalov, mm-hmm. there was a point in that match where it looked like, here we go again. <laughs> right. So I take the point that a Rafa having to play five sets at this tournament under these conditions at night, that doesn't inspire the most confidence. I take that. But my thinking was, given that Daniil is arguably the best hardcore right now on the ATP, if not, then definitely number two. 
there had to be something outside of just the physical aspect of their matchup for Rafa to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we saw that in full force sets three through five. Yes. Sets two and a half through five, I should say. I do th- actually agree with you that he would be vulnerable had Tsitsipas made the final, though. Even though Steph's return game is not what Medvedev's is, uh, Steph could make the whole thing go by much more quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, if he starts redlining and serving, holding serve really easily, then the match could disappear quickly. And also, Daniil is subject to these little lapses of concentration and we saw how much of a factor the crowd potentially played in this outcome last Mm -hmm. night Mm -hmm. and he told us as much in the press conference yes he in his own said so obliquely but it, it was clear what he was talking about no as for the match the first set was bleak (laughs) <laughs> yes. Got off to a two-all start, but Rafa had to fight tooth and nail to hold those service games. It was, I believe, 25 minutes to play four games. And at that pace, you're like, there's no way he can sustain this over five sets. As it turned out, five and a half hours mm-hmm. the match took, and he was able to do it. 6-2 first set. Second set, Nadal has many, many leads. Goes out to a 3-1 lead. Pushes it to 4-1. Has a 5-3 lead. Ends up giving back both those leads. A tie break. Again has a 5-3 lead. This time in the tie break. And goes on to lose the set. Down two sets to love. At that point, having lost an 84-minute second set, it's looking dire. Yes. So then early in the third, it's 2-3. Rafa is serving and he goes down love 40 on his serve. And you have to assume that if... Medvedev breaks here, it is over. Mm-hmm. It is more than over. And the way he got that third break point, too. Lobbing Nadal ridiculously at the net to be able to reset the point to his advantage after it had looked one. And then Rafa looking a little bit defeated at that love 40 point. Ah. Yeah. And so the commentator even said that surely was the defining point for Daniil. That point to get to love 40 on Rafa's serve. And it would have been had he broken there. The biggest problem for Rafa up until that point was his first serve. Through most of the first two and a half sets, he was serving 50% first serves in. Mm. And that just was not going to cut it against Medvedev. And on top of that, he looked like the player who was playing with far more stress in his body. He looked concerned on court a lot, whereas Medvedev was able to play a more loosey-goosey game. You know, he didn't, mm. he didn't appear stressed by anything that was happening on court rafa was not able to hit through the court i get it this isn't clay it's at night whatever his ball doesn't react to the surface the same way that it normally does but typically you're able to see nadal pardon my language but just say fuck it and just you know Mm -hmm. rifle a few balls here or there try and be more aggressive we really didn't see any of that and on top of that the backhand was mia for much of this match I assume it was part of the tactics from his team that he deployed the backhand slice so much in the first two sets. It really was not working. And perhaps one of the the pitfalls of using a strategy like that is that he was, in effect, sabotaging his own rhythm. Mm. Because he wasn't able to get multiple reps on the backhand to then be able to flatten one out. You know, they're right. going between the slice and then... And you might be getting junk returned to you, right? Yeah, so all those factors 
left him in a really bad place in this match, where Daniil did not look like he was being bothered too much. But as I sat there watching that match, even after the second set, I'm thinking, well, okay, all these things are still not happening the way they should for Rafa, but he had so many chances in the second set to win that. And a lot of these things are within his control. Raise the first serve percentage to 70-75%. Change the tactic on the backhand. Find the feeling in the forehand. Be aggressive. Be, be <laughs> aggressive. And start using drop shots. Yes. Start bringing Daniel mm-hmm. to the net, which is where Rafa had a lot of success. A lot of success. People always talk about Rafa's competitive will, and a big part of that is a strategy, right? Is be able to think through long matches and also to be be able to think clearly because you are pretty sure your body is not going to break down. That your physical fitness will probably outlast almost anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, he didn't know that in this match. No. <laughs> and we didn't know that in this match. <laughs> and so I think the turning point for Rafa was once he's able to save those three break points in the third set, he looked To me, like, he just kind of gave his body over to the moment. Mm -hmm. The tension in his physical presence and his shots, it kind of went away to a a large extent. He was able to play more freely. And you almost got the feeling like, you know, people reduce it to, oh, Rafa is going to leave everything out on the court. But more than that, it felt like Rafa knew that this was the only way to go. Like, it was Mm -hmm. time to remove the overthinking and just be in the moment and just let it rip yeah and you got the feeling like he was thinking if this is the last match of my life i i'm gonna suffer right i'm gonna fight through the pain you know he relishes that suffering for his art he said afterward that the foot did not give him any trouble in right that match which is very encouraging he talked in press and and he's spoken about this a few times over the past month that during the off season and the period where he was injured last year He was very seriously considering whether or not he could return to the sport and had some tough conversations with his team. So we get to this fifth set and Nadal again has leads that he does not hold like he did in the 2017 Australian Open final, (laughs) like he did in the second set of this match. He ends up serving for the match twice and the second time he finds those first serves and closes it out at love. I sat there in disbelief. Like, I really <laughs> did not think this would ever happen for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even at this tournament, people say, oh, Djokovic isn't here. Oh, it's gifting him a path to 21. We even said on the last episode, like, I, I personally just did not find it that likely no. that he would win. Even before, you know, seeing how this match went with losing the first two sets... I just thought this was a real long shot, and I was pleased that he was even in the quarters. Even with Djokovic out of his draw, out of his half, this was still a super tough draw for Nadal. Mm -hmm. And after all the things that we as fans of Nadal have suffered through in Australia, you didn't dare dream that this could actually happen. And this is actually the title of this episode, Dare to Dream. I want to assure you, I made that decision unilaterally before Medvedev's press conference. Yes, so this is not uh, like a snarky rebuttal to uh, Daniel's speech about his childhood dreams. No. That's not what this is. 
it's a play on one of my favorite songs. You know I love these cheesy, corny songs. The 2000 Olympic Anthem from Sydney. Appropriate. Oh. Because... I don't know this. I'm sure I've played this for you before. (laughs) Dare to Dream, sung by John Farnham and Olivia Newton-John. We had Ash Barty winning. Home favorite. We had Kathy Freeman at that match, who famously won gold in Sydney on home soil. And the Dare to Dream is for us as well. And as it turned out, in a less optimistic and positive way for Daniela as well. But I'll quote a couple lyrics here for you. Will you Will you allow me that? <laughs> sure, sure. I won't sing them. Dare to dream, dare to fly, dare to be the air, the chosen one to touch the sky. Dare to reach, dare to rise, find the strength to set my spirit free, dare to dream. Wow. We rarely get this sentimental on the show. <laughs> I don't know the song. But good choices as an Australian song. and the But the part about dare to be the air, the chosen one to touch the sky. Ash, she is the oh, air. Yeah. And she is the moment right now in women's tennis and in Australia. Well, I tell you, when they announced they had a surprise person to present the trophy to Ash. And I, you know, I knew it was going to be Yvonne Gulagong. But we mm-hmm. shrieked, both of us. Like, it was it was too much. I don't know if shriek is the right one. I did. It was more like, oh my god! I wouldn't necessarily say that's a shriek. Uh, okay, I feel like you're really, uh, you know, <laughs> being nitpicky there. Anyway, uh, back to this men's final. At the end, Rafa doesn't collapse, you noted. Mm-hmm. He usually does. But afterward, he did this celebration that I thought was the Jimmy Connor celebration. Apparently, it was inspired by Jurgen Klopp, the coach of Liverpool. I would never know that because I, I mean, I've heard his name, but I had no idea who he was. I also don't know football. (laughs) I only know football as it pertains to when their stars become caught up in sexual assault cases. Yeah, it's been happening. Anyway, we, uh, we referenced this press conference that Medvedev gave after, and he did something very unusual. He started the conference by asking if he could tell a story. And he spoke for about five minutes about kind of what it was like growing up playing tennis as a child and having these dreams and mentioned a few notable matches, a few notable losses where kind of his faith in in tennis was diminished. Yeah, or challenged, right? Mm-hmm. So he then kind of explained that this is one of those moments mm-hmm. where I feel a childhood dream is dying. But he tied that to the crowd without saying it. Right. It was clear it when he was talking. He about. made it clear, like, I'm not talking about losing this match. I love being in these great matches. This is why I love tennis. It was for other reasons, but I won't be taking questions on those. Right. And he said, I love talking to reporters, but I don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was making faces during um, Jane Hrdlicka's speech, very, very long speech during the trophy presentation where of course she recognizes the crowd the crowd wasn't particularly well behaved right so the crowd was poorly behaved it, it, and they have been for much of these past two weeks the crowd booed him yeah. as he entered the which cor- is entered really, the court I feel is really just trash behavior yeah it's not great uh and daniel was sort of making faces and muttering under his breath it was very obvious on tv and then he gave this speech to open his press conference and you know i want to say I 
I really, I do really feel for him. I have no idea what it's like to be on the court and have almost everyone there root against you. Uh, even if you've cultivated this personality where you can kind of win over hostile crowds, it's not easy. It can't or f- be easy. Or fed off of that energy to your benefit in the past. Right. And for a lot of those times, it's because you have no choice, mm-hmm. right? The, the crowd is predisposed to hate you or root against you. And it's understandable why. Of course, this 35-year-old veteran is going to get most of the crowd support, but there's really there was no license to be that obnoxious. On the part of the crowd, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. But that being said, I do... My heart is not breaking. No. Like, I'm I'm having a tough time reconciling those things, right? I can feel for him in a sense, but I'm also going to gently push back and say... I, I mean, he has acted incredibly disrespectfully to officials, to opponents. He's admitted that he used those tactics to get under the skin of his opponents. Right? Like he. He just d- this tournament called the crowd low IQ. I agreed with him then, <laughs> very famously on the last episode. But he just said that those Sioux people had low IQ. Yes. And some of those Sioux people were there tonight. And they probably saw the interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I, just, I do have trouble kind of taking this in whole cloth from Daniel, considering the way that he's acted at this tournament. Because it's a lot of you talk crazy to people. Then you apologize after and you laugh it off. But then you do the exact same thing Mm -hmm. again. Like, that's just kind of his personality. It's a pattern of behavior. Yeah. And I really, I need you to believe me. I really, really want to like him. But I just, I can't be a stan when I see him ask an umpire if he's stupid. uh, Or call him a pussy. Which is what a small cat means, right? That's what he was. But in that kind of knowing way. He's gifted enough as an English speaker, even though it's not his first language, to be able to say things without saying them in a wink, wink. You're still not going to be able to put this on my rap sheet kind of way. Yes. You know? I mean, his intelligence and his facility with several languages makes him just this ideal uh, foil because he can insult people and then almost come out of it looking OK. Because, first of all, people are generally willing to forgive men almost anything. Mm-hmm. And crowds, I mean, they love a man who supposedly speaks the truth or isn't afraid to make a few enemies along the way, right? And he does it in an entertaining way for some. Not for me, but for some. What you're referencing there is the semifinal against Tsitsipas, which for me was an almighty shit show. It was yes. an embarrassment for tennis. Uh, on both ends, right? Yes. Tsitsipas is a player who has gotten called for coaching a million times over his career his dad simply will not shut up this that's the problem right and i do i understand i acknowledge that it is uh very difficult to tell your dad to shut up i mean they do you know bicker back and forth and Mm -hmm. he did actually hit his father one time accidentally but still sitsipas says that he's told him multiple times to shut up and he that's just the way he is he can't do anything Mm -hmm. of course there is something he could do which would put an end to that permanently of course and john wertheim tweeted something about how he basically tweeted a script right for any player looking to break with their parent he said i'm so appreciative of all the sacrifices you've made for my career but i think i want to try this on my own and that's obviously easier said than done there's a whitney song for that too 
I can make it on my own. No, I am not afraid to try. <laughs> oh, Eat no. on my own. Uh -huh. I don't care anyway. if it's right or wrong. Yeah, I think we've we've had like quite enough songs already. Okay. <laughs> you've destroyed I've my train of thought here. Derailed your yeah. thought process. No, my point is, so acknowledging how difficult it must be to uh, sort of be the boss of your parent... Mm -hmm. who has made a lot of sacrifices for you mm -hmm. and who you are taught to respect and obey as a kid. Are we going to have to deal with this for his whole career? B because nobody will discipline or tell Apostolos to stop? Okay, I get it, but we need to move on. As fans and as a sport, we cannot be having this conversation for the next 10-15 years of this guy's career. Stefano says that he doesn't actually hear anything with the crowd noise and everything. I don't know if I buy that in its entirety because there are moments of quiet, many moments of quiet at a tennis match. His opponent hears something. There are nonverbal communications that people can do. I don't know exactly what is being said. I can't translate it. The tournament eventually sent a Greek umpire to go Ava check it out. Moore. Uh huh. Which didn't stop Daribas because he was then issued, well, Stefanos was issued a coaching violation yes. after those steps had been taken. Yes, but, my, so, but how do you deal with someone like this, right, who is so openly defiant of the rules? I'm talking about Daddy Tsitsipas. No, no, I'm, I'm getting there. Mm. I'm just not willing to blanketly accept Stefanos's explanation that he in no way benefits from this. That he's not hearing any of the advice, the coaching that's being given to him. A situation like this, it both helps and hurts him. You could make the case that it hurt him a lot in this match. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because to my mind, Medvedev used this as an opportunity to really put Stefanos on the back foot. Oh, yeah. And he did it in a way that was incredibly abusive and disrespectful to the umpire. Mm -hmm. But he found an opportunity to create spectacle. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, the Tsitsipas camp creates enough spectacle on their own, but Daniel sniffed out a weakness. Right. And so, in this instance, it worked as a detriment to Stefanos, it in did, my but... mind. But against other opponents, it's something that would have derailed them. Yeah. Denis Shapovalov, in that situation, what do you think would have happened? <laughs> Medvedev is somebody who thrives on those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've talked about this, and, and you actually tweeted about this, saying that Stefanos benefits from it. And I actually am not very interested in whether or not he benefits, because it's largely beside the point. The, mm -hmm. You know, the actual rule doesn't concern itself with whether the player is benefiting from the coaching. It's not allowed, period. And it doesn't have to be audible, right? As you said, it can mm -hmm. be signs and whatever... But you make a good point that, okay, Stefanos may find it very distracting and very annoying, but so could his opponent. Yeah. Right? And not every opponent knows how to weaponize that. <laughs> so that, that's a disadvantage for them. Tennis has to decide, are we allowing coaching or are we not? We cannot be straddling the fence on mm -hmm. this anymore. People, and we have been guilty of this in the past, direct the blame and the ire toward the chair umpire why aren't they doing something about it that's what daniel did in this match mm -hmm. but thinking reasonably about this 
there's only so much that chair empires can pay attention to or be reasonably expected to pay attention to with the necessary meticulous detail so as to make it fair and even. Yes. And I don't think this is one of those things. Especially when, at a tournament like this, the crowd is so wild. Mm-hmm. You're, you already have to deal with asking them to be quiet. Then you're supposed to be able to be watching both boxes and understanding what they're saying distinguish what is come on versus what is actual coaching uh i will just say the visual of having an umpire doing overtime that you need eva azdaraki more to hover near the Tsitsipas box and there i believe there was an official in daniel's box as well or near it it's just a kind of an embarrassing spectacle for the sport because this is not an unforeseen problem (laughs) Anybody who follows tennis at a reasonable pace knows that this is a problem, that can foresee this being a problem in a big stake match. Mm. So how have you again allowed yourself to look so amateur on an international stage? And so if you're not going to make the decision to get rid of coaching, you need to move the coaches somewhere else. You need to put them together in the same, right beside each other. Right beside each other, way up in the rafters, mm. and let them like fight it out between Honestly, each other. Honestly, I would put them in like interview room two at the Melbourne airport. <laughs> oh my god! Windowless, no phones. If they if they can't behave themselves, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> something else. Something else that has been suggested is to have progressive demerit system. But like, who's keeping track of that? And that again becomes subject to interpretation. Yeah, yeah. you get more instances where some players feel targeted as Tsitsipas feels he is targeted. I am utterly shocked that he would position himself as victim Mm -hmm. coming out of this situation like he did in that press conference. It's just going to be another case of, well, this umpire did this in 2018, but all these men are getting away with the same thing time and time again in the years subsequent. Yeah, so let's talk about Daniil again, which was really the bigger offense in my view was this unhinged tirade against Jaume Compostol the uh the chair umpire he uh, you know called him stupid called him a small cat and obviously we all know that he meant to call him a pussy pardon my language not everyone enjoys hearing that word of course this invited comparisons to what happened at the 2018 US Open final with Serena and uh what's his face Carlos Ramos yes and when also when Dennis called Carlos Bernardes corrupt and said that you guys are all corrupt, that was another example of when a player impugns the credibility, mm-hmm. the integrity of, of an umpire, it's considered a pretty big deal. And Serena did that very forcefully in that 2018 U.S. Open. Shapovalov was fined afterward, but not penalized in the moment on court. Yes. And Medvedev was also find after the match but he wasn't disciplined during the match so i do just want you know all the people who blocked me in 2018 maybe you can unblock apologize and then block again because i don't want to see <laughs> for one uh i heard on twitter that jaume compistol was posting funny stories on his instagram so i requested to follow him and indeed he posted a few videos of himself in a boat saying, I'm okay, guys. I'm good, y'all. <laughs> With a tiny kitty cat emoji. Oh. 
So in case you were worried if Jauma really took this to heart, he's doing okay. One of the takeaways for me from this tournament is yet again a reminder that men in general and the men of the ATP just act a fool and do and say whatever they want. And an apology after the fact is almost always sufficient for folks. Even if it's like apologies for the same thing over and over and over. Let's talk about the other semifinal for a second. Nadal versus Berrettini. As always, I was nervous about this match. And in the first two sets, there was clearly not much to be nervous about because Berrettini came in with uh, seemingly no game plan. And whatever game plan he had surely wasn't working. He had no return. He, to be fair, like he was not, he was not playing well. He wasn't playing at his top level, but a lot of his decisions were just puzzling. And Rafa sort of viewed this matchup. I mean, there's a big server with a big forehand and a weak backhand. We've been here before. Rafa has done this many times as a lefty, right? So he just picked and picked and picked at this backhand. And this is where Rafa's return position helps him against these big servers. Because those who are more committed to stay close to the baseline, they suffer the consequence of more aces being fired at them. But Rafa gets more balls in play, typically Mm -hmm. against these types of opponents. And when you have one half of your ground game so comparatively deficient in Berrettini's backhand, that's that's a tough ask. And when you also are unable to pick on Rafa's serve, like the serve wasn't that great for the last two matches. Like as a top flight ATP player, you have to be able to get more balls in play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you know, in those first two sets, Rafa was playing extended rallies, targeting the backhand. And if Mateo runs around it to try to hit a forehand, he leaves so much court exposed, right? But you run the risk of returning one backhand short or into the net that is going to end the point. When he started to turn it around in the third set, he really started to hit out, kind of impose the game that has brought him success. Got got pretty nervous because uh, it could have been a Shapovalov situation mm. where we're dragged to five sets after winning the first two sets. But Rafa studied the ship. I mean, I was impressed with how much pace and spin he was hitting in conditions that probably were annoying for him. Pretty humid conditions. Well, what what Rafa has told us this tournament is that that's the kind of stuff that might have really bothered him in the past mentally. But at this tournament, it's just, yeah, the do it or you go home. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's playing with house money as far as he's concerned. Mateo, he is now a very reliable second-week player at Slams. You can pretty much expect him to reach the second week. The problem is he does not have a great record against the top 10. He is the only player to have made the quarterfinals of each of the last four Slams on the men's side. Mm -hmm. Before we wrap up the men's side of things, let's just quickly mention what happened in the quarterfinals. Bertini beat Gael Mofis in five sets. I stupidly stayed up for the entirety of this match. (laughs) Lost sleep that I did not have to give away Mm -hmm. for that match. Yeah, you stayed up till like the time that I wake up for work pretty much every night. Yeah, I've never watched more tennis than I have these past two weeks. And that's simply a function of me being furloughed from work. I'm back to work tomorrow. Mm -hmm. 
So this this ended just in time for me to try and figure out this sleep cycle business. Yeah, so we'll see how tomorrow goes. Mateo was up two sets to love. And Gael comes back, pushes it to a fifth, but does not get the job done. This was clearly a real heartbreaker for Gael. He gave a very emotional press conference. But it's, I mean, it's pretty encouraging for fans that he really, really wants to make something happen this year. It was very much a Stacey Francis, I don't want to die with this music inside me, Simon, moment <laughs> yes, in that press conference. Yes. The uh, Shapovalov-Nadal match, which Nadal won in five sets, that was looking very dicey. Rafa went up two sets to love, and then that. No, I was shocked. And I know some folks would say, why are you surprised at this point? But I was shocked by how unintelligently, and perhaps more emotionally unintelligently, Shapovalov played in that match. Mm -hmm. To my mind... He should have won. To my mind, not only should he have won, that could have been a straight set win for him had he come out the gate correct. Mm -hmm. No, but he, I mean, we know that he struggles uh, in that area. Like he doesn't play within himself, right? Everything is big and emotionally he he matches that, right? He's, he acts bratty. He, I feel like he showed his cards in the very first set with that outburst against Carlos Bernardes. And then Rafa has to go to the net and basically, like uh, an old uncle, say, hey, dude, what's just chill. What's going on here? How often do you see players conference at the net during a match? Well, Rafa didn't know what was going on. Like mm-hmm. He's used to folks having qualms with the time that he takes on the shot clock. And that had already happened. But in this instance, he's getting ready to serve. He has still like, what, seven, eight seconds on the clock and there's this thing going on between Shapovalov and Bernardes in the chair. And he's like, what is going... This is not even... A- right. You, sh- you should have picked a point where the clock was at zero. You know, the clock was still ticking. Right. This is still in the first set. And Shapovalov explained it afterward that it wasn't that there wasn't time on the clock. He was annoyed that Bernardes was watching him and not Nadal. <laughs> so Shapovalov was like, why are you looking at me? Mm-hmm. Okay. That is such a nothing... I don't understand. I, I I get being frustrated about how long it all takes. Like, I'm, I'm not going to discount that. You know, he definitely pushes the limits and sometimes goes over them with the time he takes between points. I understand why an opponent would be annoyed by that. As it turned out, so too did Shapovalov But that's the in thing, that right? They were, you know, Rafa was averaging like 31 seconds. This is from the end of the previous point. But the umpire doesn't start the clock right then. Mm-hmm. The umpire chooses when to start the clock. And Shabovalov averaged only three seconds less than Nadal. So, you know, he was not an innocent in the whole thing. My point here is this is a quarterfinal. This is a winnable quarterfinal. There's no Djokovic in the draw. This is your moment Mm -hmm. to come on court focused. You know that this is something you're going to have to deal with before you get on court. And you self-sabotage yourself from the start. The initial title of this episode was going to be Everybody say love because <laughs> Dennis needed a consultation with RuPaul in that moment to <laughs> find and destroy his inner saboteur. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was the call was coming from inside the house. It was a completely baffling performance for me. Tsitsipas in the quarters beat Yannick Sinner in straight sets. It was a complete and utter demolition. I know folks 
Sinner is what, like 20 years old now? He won a bunch of tournaments last year. And I know a lot of folks have said, probably us as well, that he's going to be the next big deal. Oh, you you like, were a true believer. Are you I'm, saying you're not anymore? I'm not as big. I'm not as big a believer anymore. I mean, he's still very young. I mean, he's look at the strides to... he made over the last year. Right, but this was. I mean, you have the big three, then you have the little three, and then now this is like kindergarten three type <laughs> performance. <laughs> we were told that bigger strides had been made. Yes, it takes mm. time. It takes time. But I'm just saying the serve needs work. Mm. A lot of work in these big best of five moments. It's a huge liability. Yeah. And then finally, Felix Ojeleasim makes his, what, his third quarterfinal in a row. Mm-hmm. Wins the first two sets against Medvedev, which seemed very unlikely. This was such a gut punch. Mm-hmm. Even had a match point in the fourth set. But Medvedev obviously came back to win in five. Mm-hmm. I think overall, it's still a good sign for Felix. Consistently making this stage at a Grand Slam. Absolutely. The way he brought it to... Daniel, pretty much the entire match. Yes, he gave up leads, multiple leads. He had chances to break and didn't take them. But most of those were due to Daniel's impeccable serving. There Mm -hmm. weren't many moments in this match where you could point to and say, wow, that was a choke. Right. And there's been this narrative forming around Felix. It doesn't help with how many finals he's played and not won. Still yet to win a title. But there's this narrative that he's not a big match player, that he cannot rise to the big moments, that maybe his game isn't big enough to bring it to these top guys. And I think he can leave Melbourne knowing that that's absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. Mm. What does this mean for Rafa, this title, this number 21? Mm -hmm. Well, there's the obvious thing about numbers, right? It puts him at number 21 ahead of his chief rivals, both at 20. It's been 13 years since he won an Australian Open title. It's, I believe it's the longest gap among men, 13 years before a first and second slam title at an event. And it's obviously an event that has haunted him because he's been very, very close many times since 2009. To me, the the double career Grand Slam is such a massive deal. I've wanted it so badly for Rafa for many years now. Because he's been on the precipice, right, for a decade. Mm -hmm. And similarly, what I want more than anything for Serena is to have four slams at each event like Steffi does. Because these just seem like, to me, the double career Grand Slam is one of the most amazing feats in this sport. I'm not going to sit here and tell you what to think about what this means for Rafa's career, what it means for the big three, what it means about who is the greatest. All I know is that this is not something I ever expected, and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to enjoy it. (laughs) I just want to add, before we move on, I observed that both Rafa and Novak came back from two sets to love deficits in the finals where they won the second slam at their most difficult event, right? That's a word sound. It's a mouthful, but it's, it's much easier if you just think about it on the calendar. Djokovic wins his second Roland Garros title. After beating Rafa, he goes down two sets to love against Tsitsipas and then wins. Rafa does the same thing in Australia. His most tortured, most difficult event, Grand Slam event at least, and loses the first two sets against a younger player. And I think it shows, uh, obviously it shows the resilience of these top guys, these old guys now. But it also shows that 
Next Gen is there. They're like at the finish line. But these 35, 36 year olds are still capable of summoning just that little extra bit. If it's experience, if it's skill, whatever it is, they're still holding on. That's actually a very good observation you made there. What? What you just talked about. Oh, thanks. Yeah. All right, let's talk about Ash Barty, Vegemite Queen, the first winner of the Australian Open who hails from Australia since 1978 when Chris O'Neill won it. It is something we can't understand, what it's what it's like to be able to win a slam at home, how difficult it is, what the pressure feels like. When there have been so few people who've done it. You don't have the same narrative surrounding, say, a young American player trying to win the U.S. Open for the first time. It's not mm-hmm. quite the same No, I mean, thing. Americans There's... have done it constantly, yes. right? Like, Americans have dominated a lot of the 20 and 21st century in tennis. In Australia, like, this is a sporting country. They know all the tennis players. They know all the cricket players. In the U.S., like, nobody knows anything about tennis. They only know Venus and Serena. That's it. And you most know, so, of them can't even tell them apart. Right. What I loved about this moment, too, is that all the Australian dignitaries, the sporting dignitaries, were brought out in full force, and one was notably absent. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Shane Warne? He was there. He was? He was, yeah. Uh, Shane Warne was there. I know an Australian cricketer. Are you surprised? (laughs) Courtney Act was there? I mean, Courtney Act, Australia's greatest drag queen, was there. (laughs) Russell Crowe was there, looking like Orson Welles over on the sideline. I'm talking about, and I am talking about late stage Orson Welles. Oh my God. I mean, we all saw it. (laughs) I'm not talking about Citizen Kane. One of the things leading into this final... A big consideration for Ash and one throughout the entire tournament was how would she handle the moment? We saw her stumble, frankly, against Kennan two years ago mm. in the semifinal. That was a match that she was so expected to win. She gets to the semifinal, doesn't, doesn't have any problems there. No problems in the quarterfinals either. And she gets to the final and then all these people are there, all this expectation. And she meets the moment. It was a crowning moment for Ash Barty and the Australian public. It was. And she had gone through this tournament pretty easily. The, you know, the toughest set was the 7-6 set against Danielle Collins in the final. She hadn't been brought that far. She didn't lose a set in go- coming into the final. And a lot of people wondered, well, is it a problem that she hasn't been challenged that much? Because Danielle is not, she's not going to lay down and give it to her. And we saw that. After Ash played her semifinal match, I was like, okay, this is happening. Like, that was just impeccable. And then I watched the second semifinal. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I have no idea what's going to happen because Danielle Collins came out in that semifinal and just brought it to Iga Shrantek. Let's switch it up and talk about the semis first. Barty defeats Keys 6-1, 6-3. Madison had come in on a stretch of really impressive form, had been able to impose that power game and essentially blast people off the court. She did it to Krejcikova, which was very unexpected for me. And Barty was able to impose her game 
on Madison and not the other way around. And really, Madison's only hope to win that was to blast the hell out of the ball and disrupt Ash's slices, you know, get a, a read on her serve. And it just didn't really happen. The disappointing part for Madison, for me in that match, is that she didn't do the things that she could control well. She, up until that point, had the most aces of the tournament on the women's side. She did not serve well. As much as Ash is able to dictate things from the ground, utilize all her various weapons, you are able, as a big server, to control that part, that half of the court. Mm-hmm. But a, a number of players have remarked in press that we simply don't see these slices like this on the women's side. They don't get a lot of practice against slices. And Ashes is pretty versatile as well, so you're not getting the same kind every single shot. There's like four or five different ones that she can use for mm. different purposes. Her coach, before that semifinal, said, you know, what we're seeing a lot is these players, when they get up to the point in a tournament to play Ash, all of a sudden the night before they're practicing against somebody who hits a slice. Right. That's like cramming for an exam. At that point, it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Ash's huge advantage is that she's one of the only women who plays like this. So there's, well, not a lot of incentive to practice against players like this or to change your game fundamentally, unless you were her chief rival. And that's not what women's tennis looks like right now. There's a a tendency and a temptation to look at Ash Barty's game and because of the slice and because of how she constructs points... To think of her game as kind of innocuous. Mm -hmm. But it's also... Or look at it and say, so what? Yeah. Or like, oh, I could figure out how to beat that. But her game is so complete. And she also has a completely lethal side to her game that she can do damn near anything. We saw in the final that when the slice wasn't necessarily working, when she was down 1-5 in that second set, she's like, well, I'm going to have to bomb the first serve and I'm going to have to kill the forehand Mm -hmm. and so when you have that many tools in the bag i'll use a golfing analogy here like i am not at all comfortable hitting a driver it's hit or miss wherever that's gonna go when (laughs) i hit it but seven through nine iron a lot more precision there Mm -hmm. ash can hit every single club in the bag and her driver her equivalent of my driver, her two-handed backhand, is competent now. More than competent. Right, right. So, what do you do when there is a shot for every lie, every T placement, every hole location? Mm-hmm. When you're trying to return these low slices, a lot of times you have to get some lift on the ball to get it over the net. And it results in seeing Madison Keys hit moon balls? I mean, not... Not quite moon balls, but a lot of high balls, which is unlike her. And then Ash can easily just pound a forehand and end the point. And then, as you said, so Ash looked unbeatable. And then we see Danielle Collins dismantle Iga Shiontek, 6-4-6-1. A good result for Iga. I think if you had told her before the tournament, hey, you're going to roll up to the semifinals and you're going to play a good tournament, should have taken it. But what Danielle did in this match is that she really exposed Iga's second serve. Mm -hmm. The thing I take away from this tournament 
for Iga is that there's a lot of work to do on the serve. Period. Point blank. Yeah, yeah. The first strike from Danielle was pretty crazy. She hit seven return winners outright, but she also won a small majority of points on Iga's serve. She won 51% of Iga's serve points, which cannot happen if you want to win a match, you know. And Danielle hit only 13 unforced errors in the whole match. So this is a a winning formula for her. So we get to this final, and we have two players who are in peak form, really. They're at the peak of their powers, and we have Ash, who is potentially susceptible to the moment, and Danielle Collins, even though it's her first slam final, has shown she just don't care. Both players started the match very well. They're... There was no slow start for either of them. It was tight. Ash faced a break point early and fended it off with this very unlikely kind of curling forehand winner that passed Danielle. And that was only really the only moment where the momentum felt like it could have shifted. Ash gets through that first set 6-3, and it looks like we're in pretty good shape. But uh, Danielle is not somebody who is just going to go away. And she goes up 5-1 in that second set. Uh, A very clear shift in momentum. And if they had reached a third, it was, to me, like very up in the air. Like 50-50. The momentum at that point was so clearly with Danielle Collins. 5-1 up. Serving at 5-1. And Ash comes all the way back to force a tiebreak and then run away with it in the tiebreak. And like I said previously, she didn't do it by some force of luck by Danielle Collins starting to miss. She did it completely by changing her game plan, by leaning on the power side of her game. Some Mm -hmm. of those forehands that she hit in those six, seven games, just outstanding. Right, because Danielle was not really having trouble with the slice, like most of the other players were. She was handling it fine. So it did actually show you that if people are picking apart Ash's slice, she has other options, right? She can think through a match. And to be able to think through that second set when you're down 1-5, that was really impressive. Not just think through it, but then also be able to execute the game plan once you've decided what the plan of attack needs to be. Mm -hmm. This is Ash's third slam title, each one on a different surface. Yep, the first on hard court. She now only has the U.S. Open to, to make a, a career Grand Slam, which feels so crazy to say, let's say it's 2017. Can you imagine saying that out loud and it being true? We've gone from Ash Barty being considered by some an unworthy number one to thinking of Ash Barty as how long will she reign? Right. I think, and there's kind of been a shift over the past few weeks with Ash, because at least on tennis Twitter, there was much resistance, either indifference or outright resistance to Ash. People feeling she was boring or didn't really rise to to the level of what her achievements showed, right? I think people are finally starting to change their mind, and you certainly don't have to like any player, mm-hmm. right? And you don't really have to enjoy a player's game if you don't want to. But it is kind of nice that people are starting to get it 
or just like get to this place where they respect the game, even if it's not their favorite. Yeah, I mean, you can still find it boring. Exactly. That's totally reasonable. But there's, I mean, to say that Ash is not worthy of number one or not worthy of these titles, that's just lies. Danielle, for one, again, a player who has seen a real sea change among fans. People were very skeptical of her, you know, assumed she was part of that white American MAGA sect. But she is just, Danielle is Danielle. Like, she has always been herself. She's very straightforward. She can be mean sometimes. I mean, the come-ons are really what attracted me first, because they were just so brazen, right? It's what threw a lot of people off at first. Exactly. (laughs) But now that, you know, there have been a few interviews with her, uh, Courtney Nguyen shared a 2019 interview that WTA Insider did. Which is her. Yeah, which is her. Uh, (laughs) Danielle is just such a, a character. She is just her. She loves musical theater. She loves Lady Gaga. She loves Whitney Houston. Uh, loves Yeah. Uh, she talks about how proud she is to sort of come from the background she did. She could not afford the private tennis academies as a kid. She learned the game on public courts, thanked her parents for the sacrifices that they made for her career, went to college, got a degree, won the NCAA singles title twice at Virginia. She's just had a a less conventional path than most professional tennis players. Both players in this final showed that there are different ways to get to the top. Right? I mean, Ash took a break slash retired from the game when she was a teenager. And it wasn't like, oh, she wanted to play cricket, right? Let's not euphemize this. Let's not cover this over. Ash was having a real problem mentally and psychologically she needed a break from this game and she said that very clearly when she comes back she did achieve success right away but i think conceiving of her as a number one and a three-time slam winner that was that was perhaps a little too much to hope for even for the most optimistic at 28 years old danielle collins leaves australia as the number one ranked american and a top 10 player. Mm-hmm. She too dared to dream to get to where she is because there was no template for that. Yeah, she was actually the first uh, NCAA champ to reach a Grand Slam quarterfinal since Lisa Raymond. Lisa was also a two-time champion like Danielle. We mentioned the semifinals, the quarterfinals for how we ended up with this women's final. What did those look like? Well, we had Ash Barty play Jessica Pagula. Pagula repeated her quarterfinal appearance in Australia, but Barty uh, swept her away pretty easily. This was something that I think convinced me that she was going to win this title. Ash won the first set 6-2, not playing even close to her best tennis, and then the second set was a bagel. It was a Mm. supremely impressive performance from somebody not even playing at their best. And one more thing I want to add about Ash at this tournament is that I see a little bit of Federer in the way she moved through this draw. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. it's a type of performance that we saw from Federer in his heyday. Right. Making things look way easier than they actually were and having all the tools to do whatever he wanted on court. 
In the second quarterfinal, Madison Keys beat Krejcikova. Now, this was the match where I was thinking, uh-oh, is Madison's dream run going to end here? Krejcikova did not bring her best tennis. She was clearly struggling with the conditions that day. And Madison was so dominant, was so successful at imposing her power that there was no time for necklace stunts. You know, the heart of the ocean, it never came out. Oh, my God. Like... If I'm a tennis player, I'm training in Dubai or Florida yes. every offseason. Yes. It might be miserable, but you need to get used to it. N- pretty much none of these players who train consistently in these conditions or grow up in places with these kinds of scorching temperatures have any problems under these conditions. Madison was asked about it after the match, and she's like, <laughs> "I'm I live and grew up in Florida, like... This is this is nothing, really. <laughs> Collins beat Cornet. Uh, let's talk about Cornet for a second, because this is her first career slam quarterfinal in her 60th consecutive slam appearance and her 63rd slam overall. The longevity is extremely impressive. She said that she was already considering retirement at the end of this year, and then lo and behold... She rolls up to the Australian Open and has a career-best performance. Mm -hmm. She actually hasn't missed a slam since the U.S. Open in 2006. Think about where you were in 2006 and, like, all of the things that would force you to miss a slam. College shenanigans. (laughs) (laughs) That's 15 years of straight appearances. Mm -hmm. After that match, she's being interviewed by Yelena Dokic on court, and they do their really spectacular banter between each other. Mm -hmm. It was such a great interaction to watch. And then Yelena says, ladies and gentlemen, Alizé Cornet. And then Alizé says, wait, 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 wait. (laughs) I have one more thing to say. And it turns into this touching emotional moment between the two where Cornet uh, congratulates her for being so great at her job and being able to overcome the obstacles that she's had in her life. It could have gone sideways. Right. It could have, but Alizé handled it very well. Uh, You know, Yelena is really good at this. Mm -hmm. And she has been just in tip-top form. I, having never done this, I can't imagine the skill set that is required to interview players on court and keep it moving and, you know, ask your three questions. Yelena Dokic is very, very good. And because she has a way of making it feel quite intimate. We've seen, it's not just that she's a former player. Because we see we see former right. players interview They're current not all, players. They're not all good at it, right? All the time. Yeah. But she radiates empathy. I think that's that what's that's what separates her from a lot of these other people trying to do the same mm-hmm. job. And she seems like she really, really wants to know the answer. Mm-hmm. Like she's asking you a question because she's interested in the response. In the last quarterfinal, Shvantec beat Kanepi in a three-hour battle featuring one of the most ridiculous match points you will ever see. Kudos to Kai Kanepi as well. Out here at 36 years old, still just dragging these top seeds left, right, and center, just making their lives raggedy as hell. Mm-hmm. This is not somebody you ever want to play in a Grand Slam draw. Let's talk about doubles. 
Obviously, Nikirios and Thanasi Kokinakis brought a lot of eyes to the doubles tournament. I'm told it was the largest broadcast ratings smash bonanza <laughs> in the history of all tennis. And the reason is squarely because of Nikirios's prowess. Mm -hmm, that's what I've heard. Now, I'm glad that I've had a day to sort of think about this because I was not feeling very generous yesterday. I, first of all, do not want to discount this achievement because it's a huge deal, right, for him and Thanasi. And the way that they did it, beating the number one seeds, Mektic and Pavic, beating the number six team, the number three team, it was great. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. But yesterday I was feeling very, like, uh, great gowns, beautiful gowns about the whole thing. Because Nick, he's always got to go there, right? Like, he's... <laughs> he really is... Somebody called him the Azealia Banks of tennis on Twitter today mm. because of an Instagram that he posted trashing the media for quoting him i mean they didn't they didn't paraphrase right it was a direct quote but of course it's their fault because he was saying he said something like ash is great but implying the way that he said it implied that the ratings are telling him that he is the draw right when it's not it's not true he conflated court actual court attendance with television ratings yes and the rating, the TV ratings for his matches are great, but Ashes are record breaking. <laughs> yeah, right. They also <laughs> not as good as Ashes. Right. So it is not true. I just don't know why he can't make that into like a double positive, right? Say something like Ash is amazing, and I'm so glad that we have all had such a successful tournament and brought so many eyes to the tennis and da 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 da. And but, been able to what, do this for Australia. Right. Like, why did it have to be this competition? So then he went on a tirade insulting his opponents, insulting the media today. And it's just like, this is why I really, I don't muster the same empathy that I once did for Nick. I just, I can't. Cosign? Stamp of approval? Right. And I mean, there is, there is no question. And we have always, always said this, that Nick brings attention to the sport and that crowds love him. He is electrifying. But do those crowds stay? Like, do those eyeballs remain after the Nikirio circus is over? Do they watch other players? I don't know. But everybody likes to talk about what's good for tennis. A conversation that literally nobody asked for, except for maybe Patrick Muratoglu, right? Why do fans on tennis Twitter care what is good for tennis? And what are the metrics? All right. All right. In women's doubles... Krejcikova and Iakova win yet another slam, their fourth slam together, but their first in Australia by beating Haddad Maya and Danilina. Yet another crazy match point. Did you see this one? Mm -mm. The two teams trade loopy Wozniacki balls, moon balls, lobs, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then Krejcikova hits one final one that ended up being the winner. In mixed, Kiki Mladenovic and Ivan Dodig beat an Australian wildcard team, Forlis and Kubler. This is Mladenovic's eighth slam. Okay, like that's a Hall of Fame career, if we're weighting doubles appropriately. And Dodig's sixth slam. The only thing that could have made this an even better championship weekend for Australia would have been if Dylan Alcott won in his final event. Mm -hmm. He ended up losing in the final to Sam Schroeder. Dylan has been getting 
I think finally the recognition he deserves outside of Australia. He is the only Golden Slam winner in quad singles, having won the uh, gold medal at the Paralympic Games, winning a calendar year Grand Slam in singles. That was last year. Yeah. And he's just known for, I mean, he has just incredible charisma and a great personality and has drawn a lot of attention to a sport that is largely ignored, right? Mm -hmm. And Victoria Azarenka directed a lot of attention and eyeballs to wheelchair tennis at this tournament and took every opportunity she could to big them up and to big up Dylan specifically. She did that on court after uh, one of her match wins. Dylan actually received the Australian of the Year award this year and had to fly to Canberra between his semifinal and final appearance at this Australian Open. They couldn't schedule that Uh, better? uh, (laughs) (laughs) Right? But he did that. Uh, This was... Uh, written about by Ben Rothenberg in his New York Times piece on Dylan. But this was Dylan's last match as a professional quad wheelchair player. And uh, I think he will leave the sport having really bigged it up, drawn a lot of attention to it. My understanding from those who are in tennis is that this man has a huge future as commentator or Mm. TV personality, radio personality, should he should he want to go that way? We're going to end the episode with a few etc. One of them comes from our Twitter pal, Tony J. That's what we're going to go with, Tony J. Because <laughs> he did not consent to, be, to being called out on mm-hmm. the episode, right? He tweeted, quote, The only question that remains is which ATP, quote, next-gen player will become the hero to Daniel's anti-hero. It certainly isn't Zverev or the Greek, as they're just straight-up villains. Maybe Matteo? That's a, a interesting way to look at it, and somehow not something that I ever considered. <laughs> right? Like, who is who is going to be the most beloved, mm-hmm. uh, the establishment pick of, of this next gen? And I honestly have no idea, because right now they have all been framed in opposition to these beloved father figures, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I agree that Tsitsipas is a straight-up villain. I think he he needs to work some things out. He can be a very exciting player to watch and root for, but there are some habits that he really needs to work on. I don't think we're going to see this fully take hold or shape until the big three are, are gone. Oh, yeah. Or no. until it's just Novak left. Mm-hmm. I Honestly, I think they need to be fully gone off the tour completely before we understand like who who is the new cream of the crop and who our fans really going to uh, coalesce around. Mm-hmm. We were told that this tournament would suffer greatly with Novak Djokovic not there. Craig Talley went to great extents to tell us that it would be a calamitous occurrence, that the tournament would suffer financially and that eventually the Australian Open would be moved elsewhere. If this were allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, just hyperbolic else stuff. Can you imagine? And Rafa said from the beginning that no no one player is bigger than a Grand Slam event. And, uh, I mean, he ended up winning it, which mm-hmm. I know it must, as Jamaicans say, bond them. Mm, big time. <laughs> <laughs> Hurt them hot big time. 
one of the takeaways for me from this event is that even if Rafa had not won this tournament, there were a lot of good matches on the men's side, and it would have given opportunities for other players to take the next step. It could have been Felix. He showed that he is closer. It could have been any number of other players. And what's going to benefit the ATP most going forward is when these big three players are no longer on tour and they're no longer used as measuring sticks. Mm. When the Medvedevs, when the that other guy, when Tsitsipas, when those are the ones who are winning, when it's Sinner, when it's whoever, when there's an equilibrium with who is playing each other at the top, you know, they're, they're peers, they're from the same general generation, then we're probably going to look back at this next-gen thing and wonder what did we all live through for right, so long. Right. And you just, like, these players have to have an opportunity to make an impression on more casual fans, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, casual fans are looking for the big three. They're going to watch Djokovic and Nadal matches, Andy Murray matches, but the young players just kind of need a chance to make it on their own. The younger players, and uh, some of them are 25, 26 now, uh, just kind of need a chance to make it on their own without those people to compare to. Fandom is such a thing that you become so entrenched with your fave. Battle lines are drawn. There isn't a whole lot of movement from that camp once you've joined. You, you tend to become a lifer unless there is some big occurrence that happens, some big misstep that the player makes that becomes untenable for you, right? Mm-hmm. And so th- that's a an appreciating effect. Once somebody has that many followers, once that camp expands, it's like when you get to a certain level on Twitter. Say you have like 100,000 followers on Twitter. What's the difference between the 100,000 and 130? You know, it just gradually just keeps building and building Mm. and building until you are this entity. And you have this cachet built in. You have, we talk about new eyes to tennis. People then come to tennis already kind of knowing who these people are because they've heard of them. When those people are gone, when those three camps have been disbanded, then these new eyes they're coming to actually earnestly for themselves seek out somebody new to stand. And that's where somebody coming to a men's final at this tournament, if it were Medvedev against, say, Tsitsipas, be like, well, wow, let me pay real close attention and see what I like from each of these two players and make a decision, rather than, oh, we, we gotta we gotta support Nadal here. Because one, I hate that other guy. He needs to get 21. Also, he's been through so much. Wow, what a story. What a moment. We need to participate in the grandiosity of this. And that leaves only so much space for somebody like Medvedev, as good and successful as he already is. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. That was a very long-winded way. Wow. <laughs> we we spent so much time on men's tennis. It's crazy. You mentioned earlier about the uh, everybody say love thing, and you were referencing the Australian Open Pride Day, which in and of itself is an amazing thing. Uh, I think we both recognize that it suffers from sort of that corporate pride branding where it obscures 
what we're actually celebrating, right? There was a lot of rainbow imagery. They released a video of a lot of players showing support of Pride Day, but if you didn't know what the video was about, it wasn't very instructive. No. Right? It, it never mentioned LGBTQ anything. Let alone the I or the A. Uh, forget that. The plus, it, that wasn't part of it. It was all very strange. It was poorly edited because it's possible that those players did talk about it, did mm. say specifically, I love the support of my gay fans. But that if they did, that was edited out. It's almost as <laughs> yes. if there was, when you watched it, it felt like each player was reading from a script and then they just chopped, reading from the same script, mm. and then they just chopped the video to make that one script feature these six, seven players. Yeah. Uh, and this is a, a common theme of corporate pride events and, and marketing campaigns that you really take all of the politics out of it. But this one actually took the gay out of it, or the queer, or the trans, or the bi out of it, right? It was, everything has to do with love. It's mm-hmm. all love. Love everybody. I'm like, okay, what the hell does that mean? Who are we love loving? Love everybody. What the hell? What the fuck are you talking about? Who are we loving? <laughs> I mean... It was disappointing to me. I had such great, great hopes. Great that it exists. Yeah. No doubt. But it would be nice to see like a more direct uh recognition of tennis's queer fans who have been there i mean let me tell you you may not want to believe it but tennis had queer fans in the 1800s i guantee you <laughs> tennis had queer players in the 1800s i almost Re- said <laughs> liam neeson liam brody spoke directly to this at this tournament when he was asked why he why he was wearing rainbow laces and he said yeah i have a lot of gay fans and i really appreciate their support and i wanted them to know that how simple is that? <laughs> yes. Oh my, I saw some trolls say like, because obviously the response is, wow, this community is very loud for being so small. And somebody said 1% of the human population and they'd want to dominate everything. I'm like, hun, I have some very bad news for you. It's uh, The percentage is a lot higher than you think. <laughs> it's double digits and climbing. <laughs> <laughs> it's climbing. The fashions. I think our opinions mm. on this have evolved over the course of the two weeks. I would have been a lot more outraged at the Out- start of the tournament outraged. than I am now. Yes. Let me say that I am often a critic of the regular Nike line, mm-hmm. like the non-superstar line that they give to all the other people. This year, I found the red separates that they were giving the women to be very cute, very flattering. I liked the asymmetrical collar. Super cute. And Madison was wearing that white t-shirt with the red skirt. And I didn't really like it for a while. Like, I just thought it looked too practicey. She wore the uh, red separates for the semi. Looked great. See, I really liked the casual queen mm. white top yeah. that Madison was wearing. Because she often gives you casual varsity realness in her, yes. in her on-court kits. Giving comfort, you know? And mm. I appreciate that. It's very much her aesthetic. It's her personality. She yeah. should absolutely be modeling for like American Eagle or something, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was going to say Uniqlo, but then I was like, no, something more American and more jockish. Love those. Uh, you wrote down uh, Garin's all black look. Mercy. Which is really, I feel like just more about him. He wore it well. <laughs> I'll say that. 
I'm always partial to an all-black kit, no matter how impractical it is in the searing sun. Mm. I love a black and white kit. I don't need a whole bunch of swirly, swirly colors. You can accent with the shoes with a cute little wristband. Um, but Christian Garin just filled out every inch of that kit. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Coco Goff's New Balance uh, Rainbow Kit. That was so cute. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved it. I mean, the Barilla logo, I feel like it can go. Oh At this point, girl, you're going to make a lot of money in your career. Get rid of Barilla. But the the shirt is so cute. It also looked good on Serana Cristea as well. She wore a variation oh, really? she, of that. She played this tournament? She did. I don't remember. <laughs> she did reach the round of 16. I'm just being facetious. Right? It was a round of 16. Yeah. yeah. I, I did not like... I feel like I may have said this already on a previous episode. The Adidas... Is it Adidas? The Adidas tops that um, Felix wore. The white, splishy, mm. splashy... Oh, on a, the fact... Tie-dye looking... The fact that I can't remember it isn't a good sign. Yeah, I... Felix looked great in it, but the shirt itself, I did not care for it. I also did not care for the top that Tsitsipas was wearing. In theory, it would have worked really well with the black shorts, but again, it just looked drab. Mm. Like, it could have been giving more. Were there any other kits that you enjoyed? I very Um. much loved the ruby red slipper shoes that Ash wore. (laughs) And it worked great with the design of her kit. It's the kind of pop that you don't really expect from an Ash Barty kit. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the actual shirt I didn't love. Like, I, I wasn't very excited by it. But the red sneakers were cute. And then somebody who did not have a clothing deal. Oh, my Lord. Danielle Collins. So her contract with New Balance is up. And she came into this tournament wearing, like, a, a yoga brand. Just, she's kind of searching out her own clothes and buying them. I think at this point, she can secure a pretty nice deal with somebody i i suggested ls i love ls's tennis clothes and i think she would look amazing in them i don't know if they have the kind of money that she deserves now as a top 10 player does venus williams have the money maybe she might that'd be a nice little crossover there with how much danielle talks about Mm -hmm. how she loves and was inspired by the williams sisters if she were to roll up to spring tournaments in 11 gear. This next segment, little mini segment, because it's only three tweets. You want to recognize some tweets that you really enjoyed during Mm -hmm. the fortnight. It's just three of them. You know, as usual, Tennis Twitter is doing yeoman's work during Grand Slams. These kids are out here all hours of the night giving you comedic genius. An account called Paola Badosa's Boyfriend tweeted... Corda has the face of someone who would show up to your medieval village and demand taxes. <laughs> when I tell you, I screamed because you, I have seen that character like, on TV. Why does this make so much sense? I have I, seen that character. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I immediately knew what it meant when I read this tweet. And to be clear, I don't necessarily know some of these accounts, so I can't swear for what their regular, regularly scheduled programming is <laughs> right. like. But these just really stuck out to me. Waluigi IRL uh, tweeted, Clara watched a Wozniacki match and was like, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. 
<laughs> she really is the opposite of Wozniacki. And then TBS fave, you'll have heard or known about her for, for a while now if you've listened to this show. Frith, she tweeted, Danielle Collins gives off the strongest vibe of always knowing she was capable of this, which makes me understand why she's always been so mad. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is funny, but also kind of profound. Yeah. And I just want to shout out uh, Care Bear on Twitter, who is at Kerber underscore in, who made the official Danielle Collins fan cam, which I've watched many, many times. Can you explain to folks what a fan a cam fan is? A fan cam is basically a short video that compiles a bunch of different footage of that player. And it's, just, it's like a fan appreciation video. You see it across different sports, TV shows, genres, whatever. Finally, before we close the show, so much movement in the rankings. Yeah, you say movement, I say wreckage, carnage. <laughs> Sinkage. Uh, so first of all, Medvedev had a real chance to reach number one if he had won this tournament. He is still about a thousand points away from Novak. And so we don't know how the next few months are going to go with where Djokovic is going to play. Uh, if he's going to be able to defend Roland Garros, Wimbledon, etc. Medvedev has a very realistic chance of taking over the number one ranking. Rafa actually stays at number five. Matteo Berrettini reaches his career high of number six with the semifinal appearance. Federer is down to number 30, which still feels very high. (laughs) It's been a while uh, that he's been kind of artificially highly ranked. Dominic Team. At number 37-ish at this point. We're looking at the live rankings here, so it'll become official tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. But hey, uh, Maxime Cressy at a career high of number 59. He was asked about what he was looking for in terms of sponsorship because he doesn't have one as yet. And it was put to him that, you know, like, will you be negotiating now? Will you be trying to get something done? And he said, no, I think I'm still too low in the rankings to really have the leverage that I want. And I'm like, okay, good for you, sir. On the women's side, we will have a brand new women's world number four. And who will that be, James? That will be Iga Svantec. On the women's side specifically, we had a lot of players just fall off the face of the earth in the rankings. And a lot of them were from the the top of the rankings. So somebody like Iga, though she made a semifinal and picked up 540 ranking points, that bumped her up five spots because there were a lot of drops. Naomi Osaka, not being able to defend her points here, drops to number 86. Sophia Kennan, number 95. Jennifer Brady was the defending finalist here. She's down to 111. Serena is at 246 and... I don't even want to speak this out loud. Venus is at 464. Yes. So there are a lot of very high-profile players who may require wild cards at certain events. They're going to be battling for a limited number of wild cards, unless a few of them start to work on their rankings uh, getting into smaller events. Mukhava is at 66. Oh, man. And she was a semifinalist in Australia last year, right? Kinepi is up to 63. She has a career-high ranking of number 15. And let's hear it for Madison Keys, who is back to number 28, improving her ranking by 23 spots. 
Amanda Nisimova up to 42, up 18 spots. Elise Cornet, 37, up 24 spots. A lot of great news for some folks and a lot of bad news for others is the bottom line. I think more so than most other slams we've covered because yeah. of the points. Well, it's because really how little those people have played. The players who fell really far, Naomi, Sophia, Jennifer Brady, they've played barely at all. Mm-hmm. And same with Serena and Venus. Since the Australian Open last yes. year. Thank you so much again for any everyone who's donated to the GoFundMe. This, I promise, this is the last. This is the last mention of it. <laughs> uh, we, I feel, we've gotten too comfortable talking about money. You know, it was it was very awkward back in 2019 when we first did it. It's still awkward. It is. But we did say from the start that we would be leaving it open through the end of the Australian Open. Yes. So we will be closing it on Tuesday. Thank you so, so much to everybody. Someday, I'm sure, we'll be able to travel. Thanks for uh, sticking with us in this very turbulent January. It's been busy for everybody. It's been difficult but very rewarding for us to keep up with everything. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We're at The Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. And of course, our link tree is linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Where you can find all the GoFundMe stuff as well. Thanks for listening. Well, after that, I said, fuck, one more time. Till next time.